Um, growing up, I didn't have a lot of mentors. I don't. I can't really remember uh, any mentors that I really had. Um, most of my time when I was in high school was based around sports. I was a jock in high school, and so you would think that my, my mentors would be uh, my coaches, but that wasn't the case. Um, I did have one coach, one of my football coaches, who I think extended his hand to me a little bit, but then he got dismissed from the job, uh, politics, and so he was gone. That was a, like a one-year one year thing. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but just by going to uh, church and sitting in Bible classes and listening to sermons and things like that, that <clears throat> I did have a mentor. That it was it was Jesus, but I didn't I didn't realize that at the time. I, I looked at it as learning Bible lessons, really. You know, um, so that's kind of like what I want to look at this morning. Uh, Jesus. Kind of as a mentor, uh, in conjunction with uh, our theme uh, from from for this year uh, in our Bible classes and in uh, our teaching, um, and our theme is partaking in a divine nature. And then in our Sunday school class this morning, Josh gave an excellent definition of what that was. Um, I looked at it, and I look at it as, uh, you know, what is divine nature? Uh, of course, it's God's nature, Jesus' nature. Um, and it's the essence of the character of God, the Father. His nature is his essence. Um, and it's also the essence of the character of his Son, who is the Anointed One. Um, and anointed, of course, is... We understand that as the Christ um, or the Messiah. And to partake of that divine nature means that we have to join in. We have to be active. Um, we have to consume uh, that nature. We have to, he's sharing it with us. And so we have to take it, so to speak. Um, and of course, Jesus, when he walked the earth, was the uh, human embodiment of the divine nature. Uh, when I look at the scriptures, reading, reading the Bible, there's a lot of things there um, to be taken in and to understand. I mean, you have the teachings of Paul, uh, how the church works, how we're supposed to treat each other uh, in the brotherhood um, what the church is supposed to do in terms of its work as, a, as, a, as an entity as a community then you have the Old Testament scriptures which is kind of the history of God's people and kind of a foreshadowing of what God uh, wanted for his people in eventuality um, you have the Acts which talks about how the church as an organization got started. Yeah. Then you have the Gospels. 
the Gospels about Jesus, about his life, uh, about what he did, the things he did when he walked the earth. But it doesn't matter if you're, you know, studying, starting out in Genesis through Revelation, if you're alert and if you're attuned uh, and if you're sensitive, you can see there's a lot of people throughout the scriptures that you can learn from. Okay? There are people that do really good things and you can look at them and say, well, you know, maybe I should be modeling that. Okay? And then there are people that do really bad things, really wicked things. And you can look at those people and say, you know, well, I best stay away from that or that's not a good path to go down. But there, to me, there are examples in the scripture that can help us all the time. I mean, if we get, you know, what do I do in this situation or what do I do in that situation? I mean, there, there's all kinds of examples there where you can say, well, yeah, that's kind of a situation. It might not be specifically what you're going through. It might be just in general what you're going through, but you can look at it and say, well, yeah, that's, that's, some, that's something that I can look at and say I can, I can, I can do it that way. Okay? You also have people in the church who can explain things to you. So you might not understand it completely, but they can explain it to you because they have that insight, they have that wisdom we talked about in, in uh, our class this morning, about wisdom. In the Hebrew, that's skill, being skillful. And God has given us all uh, a certain amount of skill and wisdom and we can use that wisdom to gain more wisdom we talked about Solomon and that's the you know God asked him what what, what do you want what, what do you desire and he said well wisdom and that you know God liked that and so he said because you asked for that I'm going to give you that and much more um, but today I want to talk about about, about Jesus and not everything that he did uh, is covered in the four Gospels, but just a few things that he did and how we can look at the things that he did and then we can use that as a guide for us because ultimately, you know, that's who we should be looking at. When we, when we read what Paul teaches, he's teaching Jesus Christ. He's not teaching Paul. He's teaching Jesus. So, when you read and study Paul's writings or Peter's writings or John's writings, it's basically Jesus by proxy, so to speak. So let's look at Jesus here this morning. Uh, like I said, Jesus was the living embodiment of the godly uh, nature, okay, the divine nature, uh, if you will. Um, it says in First John, uh, verse fourteen, it says, "And the Word became flesh and lived among us." Now, the word uh, here kind of is defined as uh, as the logos. Uh, 
and it's not strictly uh, defined as uh, the nature, but it could be nature of God. The nature of God became flesh and lived among us. In John 4.10, this is when Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he tells her, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And that living water is part of the divine nature. If, if you would partake of the living water, she's partaking of the divine nature. Living water. Before Jesus uh, began his ministry on earth, there was a, another guy on the scene named John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, and he was the cousin of Jesus. And he was sent ahead of Jesus, as the scriptures say in John 1, 7, as a witness to testify to the light. Okay. Now, Jesus, of course, is the light. So he's there to testify uh, about Jesus. Now, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Okay? So it says in Luke 3, 3. Now, if you look at the Jewish faith, um, and you look at proselytes, a proselyte is in, in terms of the Jewish faith is someone a Gentile outside of the Jewish Jewish faith, the Jewish religion, the Jewish race, who wanted to be part of that religion. Um, and they it wasn't discouraged, but in order for that to happen, um, in John's time, there was kind of this baptismal rite that they went through. They probably went through some other things too, but one of the things that they went through was a baptismal rite. And this, this baptismal rite was a symbol of cleansing. Um, and that's similar to, to the baptism of John. Um, it was a way for people to show repentance, to be cleansed, and to kind of start over. Similar to the way uh, in Old Testament times when they brought the bulls and the goats in for sacrifice. And their sins were pardoned for a year, but they had to do it. They had to come back in consecutive years, and because it wasn't a permanent thing. And this is this is what they were doing here with uh, John, his his baptism, just kind of start over clean. Um, and why did they want to start over clean? Well, these people were anticipating. They were looking. They were waiting for the Messiah. Okay, they're waiting for someone to come. They're waiting for a savior to come and to liberate them. They wanted to be liberated, I think, as a nation, but some were also astute enough that they wanted to be spiritually liberated as well. So they were looking for that. And that's why they sought John out, basically. Some thought, you know, well, are you he? Are you the Messiah? You know, are you some great prophet? And he said, no, I'm not. 
Now, if you remember, Jesus was baptized by John. And, you know, in different, different classes, people bring it up, well, why did Jesus have to be baptized? I mean, he was, he was a perfect human being. He was the son of God. He was God. Why, why did he have to be baptized? Um, well, Jesus wasn't yielding to John's baptism of repentance here. Um, in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 19 and 20, talks about Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I remember Melchizedek was uh, in Genesis when Abraham uh, offered uh, uh, sacrifices to uh, Melchizedek. Um, and Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was outside the Levitical priesthood. And he wasn't wasn't a Levite. He was before the Levites, really. So <clears throat> Jesus had, you know, his titles. If he was a priest in uh, in the order of Melchizedek, he was also a prophet, and he was also a king. Jesus the Christ, the Anointed. He was a king. So Jesus was a prophet. He was a priest. He was a king. Okay. And if you remember in um, Leviticus, and I've talked to you guys about Leviticus a little bit this year in my attempts to read through the Bible, and you know, things are going along pretty smoothly until you get Leviticus, and then things kind of get bogged down a little bit. If you remember in Leviticus, I was talking about uh, the priests, and before they could represent the people before God, they had to go through a cleansing as well. A cleansing with water. So what I'm seeing here with, with Jesus being baptized by John, um, he wasn't being purified, but it may have been symbolic of his priesthood. Okay? It also anticipated Acts 2.38. Peter's sermon said... Uh, he talked about being forgiven of sins, baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And you remember when Jesus, after Jesus was baptized, what happened? The Spirit of God came down on him like a dove. So after he was baptized, God's Spirit came down on him uh, like a dove. And he was ready to do God's work. Okay? But before he went out and taught the people to be among the multitude, so to speak, um, he had to be tempted. He had to resist temptation. Because you remember, Jesus was a man. He was a human like we were, but he was God as well. He's the spirit of God. He was God, but he was a man like us. So if he was going to be that propitiating sacrifice, if he was going to be that sacrifice that was better, more appropriate than bulls or goats, meaning he was going to be like us, he was going to be like humankind. But in order to be the appropriate sacrifice, he had to be better than us. Okay, and he was, he was, he was perfect. But he also had to be like us as well. Okay, so he was like us, 
and he was better than us. And so if he's going to be like us, I mean, we're tempted every day, right? And I've heard people say that, you know, when they study, they become a Christian, after they're baptized, right away they're, all these things kind of like come at them, okay? Things that might not have been bothering them, might have been in, in away from them uh, for years or, you know, maybe months or years. So they become baptized, all the things, these things start to come out of the woodwork. These temptations start to come out. It's kind of like what's going on here. If Jesus was baptized, received the Spirit of God, and he's facing temptation. So he fasted, went out to the desert, and encountered the devil, he encountered Satan. There were three temptations uh, that he went through. And I guess these, these temptations embody everything that, kind of like what we would go through. Kind of like what we were reading this morning in uh, Ecclesiastes. Kind of the things that the, that the teacher uh, uh, was looking into. They were everything, it was like a symbol of everything that mankind would kind of like want and desire. These temptations, these three temptations, embody everything that, that we would go through in a general sense, okay? So, in Luke, uh, the fourth chapter, starting in verse 3. Actually, verses, verse 3 is the first temptation. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Okay. And Jesus fasted. He went out in the deserts. He was hungry. Okay? So, Satan's going to appeal to that physical desire. Okay? And we all have physical desires that Satan can appeal to. Um, and hunger is probably, along with water, thirst is probably the ultimate desire that all of us need. So that's the ultimate, you're hungry, okay? You haven't had food for a long, long time, okay? When you don't have food for a while, sometimes your body even starts to physiologically act up, okay? Because I, I, I had a friend who went on a fast, uh, and I don't, think he really realized what he was getting into, but after about 30 days, his body started to really act up. And you just can't, okay, I, I, I fasted for 30 days, I think I'll, I'll have a steak. That's not gonna happen, your body's gonna reject that. You're gonna have to like get back into it, eating, starting with broth, maybe water and broth, slowly. So I mean, so my, my point is that hunger is a need that we all have. It's a universal need. And, and that's where Satan uh, tried to tempt Jesus with this, a physical desire. And uh, Jesus said, well, he answered him and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's using scripture to rebuke Satan. Okay. So that's something we can learn from Jesus right there. 
when all, I don't want to say when all else fails, that should be our first, the first thing, but if you get to the point where you've exhausted everything, there's, there's scripture. Go there and learn and use it. Okay. The second temptation is in uh, verses 5 through 7. Jesus' response is in verse 8. Um, and then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you will then, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Here he's appealing to the pride of life. He's appealing to power. He's appealing to the ability to have sway or influence over other people. And it, it, Satan is offering this in exchange for Jesus worshiping him. So basically what he's really asking for here is I will give you these things because he knows ultimately if, if, if Jesus acquiesces, he will, Satan will have all those things too. He will have that power and that sway over everything. Okay. But what does Jesus say? Jesus answered him and said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and shall, you shall only and him you shall only serve. So, when you're faced with uh, things in life that you want, you know, pride of life, uh, power, and, and power over people manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Okay? Friendships, relationships, things like that. You want the upper hand, you want things your way. And some people get really belligerent in that manner. Okay. Turn to scripture. You use Jesus as an example, as a mentor. The third temptation is in uh, 4, 9 through 11. Jesus' response is in verse 12. Um, and he took him to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Okay, here, uh, this is all about testing God. And what does it mean to, to test God? How, how, do we, how do we test God? Well, test God, I think, when we make demands of God. There's a difference between asking God for something in prayer I, and honestly asking him and, 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 and communicating with God like Moses communicated with God, not being shy about it uh, and demanding things like, you know, it's your birthright. Challenging God. Okay. Putting a strain on your relationships with God. This is testing God, and this is what's going on here. Um, 
And Jesus says, you should not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Don't do it. Simple as that. Well, after Jesus uh, went to the desert, was tempted by Satan, and he was ready for his ministry, ready to walk among amongst the people. Um, but he need, he wasn't going to do it by himself, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I mean, he's God. Why couldn't he just accomplish these things by himself? But that wasn't the plan. He needed helpers. He needed people to help him. They're called his apostles. Okay. Um, they weren't the only ones who helped, but they were the main ones. What's an apostle? Apostle is a messenger sent uh, of God. The apostles were Jesus' 12 closest confidants and his students. They basically sat at his feet, like Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, like Socrates, Aristotle had students. They sat at Jesus' feet and they learned, okay? I remember Andrew, Peter's brother, he was a disciple. At first, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. And Peter, Andrew, James, and John, his brother. Now, these guys were commercial fishermen, basically uh, blue-collar, relatively uneducated men. Okay, And I found, found it kind of interesting, too, that when you're going up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these people were the educated men, the educated people of their time. And you're going to teach something that, on one hand, is very sophisticated, the Christian faith. But on the other hand, it's very simple, and the basics of it are easy to understand and easy to learn. Okay? And he picked basically uneducated men to go out here and do this. Fishermen, commercial fishermen. And when Jesus called these people into this, their service, what did they do? I find this kind of interesting, too. Um, they went right away. They didn't hesitate. This goes back, they were looking for something. They were looking for a Messiah. And that's a little bit different than today. I mean, Josh and Richard and you guys, and you go out and do your, those meetups, People aren't clamoring to find out about God. I don't, I don't think. There's probably some who have an interest. But it's not like they're lining up. Okay? Back then, people were looking for a Messiah. Now, there's advantages to that, and there's disadvantages, which we're going to talk about in a, in a couple of minutes. But the disciples, when he called them, when he called Pete, Andrew, Andrew went and told Peter, okay, when he called James and John, they were on the boat with their, their father's fishing boat. He didn't ask. To, he didn't have to ask them twice. So they came. Okay, they responded to Jesus' call and they went and told others, which is a pattern for us. Okay, when we're called and we understand, we we'll go tell other people. Okay, we we'll go tell other people. It doesn't have to be in the context of a class. A formal class. It can just be in the context of your life, which is what really it should be, anyways. Okay? 
then I notice here that um, the scriptures talk a lot about Peter, James, and John. They were kind of like in, in Jesus' inner circle. But also here uh, in John 147, yeah, in John 147, talks about Philip telling Nathaniel. And Nathaniel comes up and, and Jesus goes, you know, here's a guy. He doesn't have any kind of deceit. Wouldn't you like Jesus to say that about you? Here's, here, here comes a man without any kind of deceit. Um, which means he wasn't a pretentious type of guy. Um, he wasn't false. There wasn't any false pride or anything happening there. Um, and I think about like, like false pride. And this is what something I think that, that, that Christians can get tripped up on, okay? It's kind of like false kind of pride. Because ultimately false pride, I can, you know, on one hand, you don't want to come off as being prideful and haughty. And so you go kind of like in the other direction and I'm, I'm humble. And sometimes that's a lie. False pride is a lie. And Jesus said here with Nathaniel, here's a man without deceit. He didn't have anything like that. He's one of, one of the twelve. Now, like a lot of these guys, they were from the area of Bethesda. And I looked up Bethesda, and Bethesda means house of fishing. So these guys were, like I said, they were commercial fishermen. But that was their life. And so Jesus used uh, kind of fisher symbolism to kind of initially teach them what he wanted them to know, how he was going to use them. Um, and Jesus used an example. Jesus used a lot of different ways to teach people. Okay. Now, I'm not knocking formal classes like what we're doing here, what we did about 45 minutes ago, that's good. I'm not knocking. But then when we're told we're to be kind of like teaching people, first thing that pops in, I've been to the congregation and I'm not knocking this either. But it's personal work. We kind of like meet like one Saturday a month or something. I remember up in New York and go out and do personal work which means like knocking on doors and things like things like that. Um, but Jesus used a multi, multiplicity of ways to teach people. He used oration, like what I'm doing now, or the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, it was a sermon. Okay, when he was with uh, the multitudes, when he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, it was basically oration. It was a sermon. But he also, in smaller groups, he used parables. And the parables were based on things that the people understood in their life and knew about. And he used things that they could understand to teach them spiritual teachings. In order to do that, you have to understand people. You have to understand the culture that you live in. You can't, like, box yourself up in the church building, you know. And, and just read the Bible. You have to understand people. You have to be out among people. 
Okay. He also um, used miracles. His miracles just weren't frivolous. He just wasn't out, well, you know, like doing magic tricks, so to speak. His miracles had a purpose. They were you know, to teach people. Okay. So, I've said that most of these guys are, are fishermen or associated with fisher people. Okay. So, if and, and so Jesus is using that, and and he says, you know. Um, Look at Matthew 4, 18-22. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and casting a net into the sea, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. So that showing that they, they immediately left. But they were, they were fishermen. That was their life. Okay? So if Jesus used that, this kind of, uh, these kind of people and was using symbolism of, of a fisher, if we're out teaching people, trying to help people that makes us kind of like fisher too right so I want to look at what some of the qualities are that a fisher might have and I don't know any if you guys have a lot of experience with going fishing uh, I've gone once or twice um, there's different kinds of fishing I mean there's you know commercial fishermen like with Peter and, and James and John that still exists today but let's look at some of the qualities of what, what a fisher might be first thing you have to have patience if you're going to fish okay I don't care if you're out in a boat and you drop a net down into the Atlantic Ocean and you wait for it to fill up with fish before you pull up you have to be patient okay or if you're sitting on the bank of a river, and you're casting your what do you call it, a fly <laughs> into the into the to the water, and you're sitting there, and you're just contemplating. You're waiting for a fish to bite your hook, you know, so you can reel it in. So you have to have patience. Um, and in Galatians five twenty three, isn't patience one of the fruits of the spirit? Being patient, you have to have a willingness to learn for sure. I mean, like I said, I've gone once or twice, but I can't say I'm an expert in fishing. Okay? So you have to have a willingness to learn. That's what Jesus looked for uh, in his 12 uh, apostles. Um, and in Ezra 10, chapter 4, it says, Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. So God is saying we are with you. Have to have a willingness to learn, and God will teach you. He'll show you the way. He'll bring someone into your life that will instruct you, if, if that's what you need to be. But He'll show you the way. So you need patience. You need. You have to have a willingness to learn. You also have to have to respect. Okay, and of course Matthew seven twelve says, "So whatever you wish that others 
would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and this is the prophet. You have to have respect for other people. If you're going to go out and teach people about Jesus Christ and you ultimately don't respect them for whatever reasons, and, and, and you know, a lot of times Christians look at disdain of people who aren't Christians. Like, you know, they're, they're kind of like scummy because, you know, they, they, they disobey God. They're not godly. Okay? You have to have a certain amount of respect for people if you're going to go out and mingle with them and teach them. Because if you don't respect them, people are going to know that. They're not going to want anything really to do with you. They're going to think you're fake and phony. Okay? You have to be adaptable. You have to have adaptability. Um, in Romans 12, 2, but be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So you have to be have adaptability. Okay? Scriptures say be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You also have to have creativity. And uh, creativity as analogous with uh, having skill. And we said that having skill in Hebrew is wisdom, being wise. So ultimately you have to have a certain amount of wisdom and if you don't feel you have the kind of wisdom that you need, you need to pray, you need to ask for it. This is a James. If you don't have those things that you want, then you need them. Pray for them. Okay? Um, in Proverbs twenty two twenty nine, 29, it says, Do you see a skillful man in his work? Or do you see a wise man in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. When I was reading this, I was just thinking of Paul. Okay? And standing before kings. You have to have self-confidence. Um, and as we were talking about in Ecclesiastes this morning, not confidence ultimately in yourself, but you get that confidence from God, confidence in God. And then it's transferred in yourself, but you know that really that confidence is from God, okay? That he, what he can do for you, what he can make happen. Um, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And lastly, at least in the list that I have, you have to be generous. There has to be a certain amount of generosity. Uh, In Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's what you desire is what you deem important your treasure that's where your heart's going to be okay I want to talk a little bit about the multitude because I mean he had these his 12 apostles who were close to him and there were other disciples kind of extended and then there were the multitudes that followed Jesus around the crowds that he preached to and ultimately, the multitude is us. We're part of the multitude. We are part of the multitude. Really. Um, 
in John chapter 6, verse 25 through 27. It says, They found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So these people were part of the multitude. And he's saying, why, why were you following? You know, you're following me not because you really want to, to learn. It's because I fed you. So there's always going to be people that you're going to run into when you teach. They're part of what's called the bandwagon. You already know what a bandwagon is? Josh and I went to the Atlanta United soccer match yesterday, and there was just like a horde of people. We're, we're, we're going up the escalator into the uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I mean, just a horde of people. And I go to Josh, I go, well, I, I, what would happen if you know, if the team starts losing, you know, are these people going to be... And Josh goes, well, you would think, I hope they would, I hope they would. But if, you know, and I don't, I'm not wishing anything negative on the team, but if the team dropped into a period where things weren't going so well, ultimately there's going to be people who aren't going to show up because they were bandwagon people. You move into California, I mean, L.A. and San Francisco can bandwagon with the best of telling. So they're bandwagon people. And that's what was happening here. These people were bandwagoners. You know, I remember when Jesus was telling them certain things, oh, this is too hard, we can't, we can't do, you know, we can't do this. These are like bandwagon people. There's always going to be people like that. Temporary gratification. Part of, the, you know, following the group. We don't want to be like that. And we don't want to be discouraged or we run into people like that. Okay? So, just to finish up, um, let's look, look at our role in uh, if we were part of the multitude. Um, I looked at Psalms 139, verses 13 through 16. And it's kind of like what how God looks at us. It's how God looks at us. And what we what we mean to him, how personal we are to him. And it says, For you were created, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them has yet existed. And what's he saying here? Saying that God, or you can look at it from your own point of view, God shaped me, shaped you from the inside, then out, when you were in your mother's womb, when you, even, you weren't even conscious of yourself. Okay? 
And because of this, the writer saying, I worship you in adoration, which we should be doing. He says, you know me inside out. You know every bone in my body. Scripture say every knows every hair on your head. Um, you know exactly how I was made, bit by bit. I was sculpted from nothing into something, which is interesting, because like even a great sculptor, like Michelangelo, I mean he sculpted from a piece of stone. He had something to start. We were sculpted from nothing into something. You watch me grow from conception, not from birth to now, but from conception to birth. All the stages of our lives were spread out before God. And all our days were prepared before we even lived. So that's our connection, that's our relationship with God. That's how He sees us. And sometimes, you know, we're kind of blind to that and, and we can't see that and we don't understand it um, and that's why it's important to seek God out and be a partaker of the divine nature because it's there it's not something that we have to buy just already bought it for us okay it's there for us to take we just have to be active and we have to, to understand what we need to be doing so that's all I have this morning. I thank you for your attention, and I hope that what I was saying was, was clear. <laughs>